Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the living God. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the living God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray. Almighty God, we pray now that you might encourage our hearts. Help us, O Lord, as we look to your word. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see the glories of your gospel. We thank you for this word from Isaiah, and we pray that the preaching of the word of Christ this day would be his voice to his sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps if we could summarize the goal for today, it would be one simple goal. To answer the question, what is Christ like? What is the Lord Jesus Christ like? From the pages of Isaiah's prophecy written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, we might could say, what is the coming Christ going to be like? For if you are a covenant member in the old covenant, you are following the words of promise that echo all the way back from the Garden of Eden, that there is going to come the skull crushing seed of the woman. And that promise has been carried through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, through Moses, through David. What will he be like? Those of us looking back on the son, looking back on his finished work need to ask a similar question. What is my Lord and Savior like? Isaiah 42 begins one of several songs that are known as the servant songs. They're in the context of a larger grouping of the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 through about 60 to 65. And therein, we see a prophecy of the coming work that God is doing to comfort and restore his people and bring the gospel promise that this suffering servant will bring to all nations. Isaiah 40, that famous passage begins this way. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. 
says, says to your God, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Isaiah 40 begins with the words of comfort to Israel. And then Isaiah 41 verse 21 moves that comfort to the Gentiles. The powerful creator is about to bring forth change in human history. And in this section, we actually meet two kinds of servants. Two kinds of servants. Look back just a few verses to Isaiah 41, verse 25. The Lord promises that he's going to raise up a servant to free his enslaved people. This servant is going to come from another region and ultimately crush those that are enslaving the Hebrew people. Look at verse 25 of chapter 41. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the pot potter treads clay. Later on in chapter 45, verse 1, we learn that this is Cyrus. This is Cyrus the Great. Look there at Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. In the midst of this discussion of an earthly king named Cyrus, that the book of Isaiah prophesies long before Cyrus is even born. In the midst of this discussion of Cyrus and how he is going to be used of God to bring about justice for the small region of his people known as the Hebrews, another servant is mentioned. Another servant is mentioned, and it is this servant that is the bigger servant. For Isaiah 42 begins in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Now, some readers might think, well, we just read about a servant, a king from the north, who's going to treat other princes as if they were clay. He's going to stomp them out and fold them and mold them. Maybe Isaiah 42, verse 1, is a continuing discussion of that servant. But as we read these nine verses, this servant seems different. He doesn't seem like a military leader who is going to crush He seems rather to be a soft and gentle and kind servant. But in addition to this, the book of Matthew helps us to understand how to interpret this passage. Of course, we are bold to proclaim and we are right to proclaim that Scripture interprets Scripture. So turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17. Here in the Gospel of Matthew... We read these words. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. The religious leaders, not concerned with the simple moral law of God, but with all of their extra commands, are plotting against Jesus. And we read these words in Matthew 12, verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then here's our text from Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. 
He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. So we need not wonder, as we read Isaiah 42, verse 1 and following, who this servant is. Cyrus is mentioned. Cyrus is prophesied, which, interestingly, boys and girls, what book besides the Bible do we know of? Where the author, in this case God, tells us things hundreds of years before they actually happen. Cyrus is a servant that is going to be used to free the Hebrew people. But there's a greater servant, a greater servant, the coming Messiah, the one that God has chosen. This is the one that we read of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But what is he like? What will he be like? The servant king from the north, the one who's going to be used of God to establish righteousness for the Hebrews. He is pictured in Isaiah 41, verse 25, as coming against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. What is the other servant going to be like? To answer this question, I want us to see this morning four simple truths about the coming servant. Four simple truths about the coming servant. Before we look at these truths, notice in verse 1 that this servant is a servant of the Lord. This is the Redeemer, the Mediator, according to His work as the God-man. This is the Messiah. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Notice the words used in verse 1. The Lord upholds Him. He is the elect one in whom the triune God delights. He is the one who has God's spirit, if you will, poured out upon him. Yes, boys and girls, as Jesus, the God man walked on the earth for some 30 years, the Holy Spirit guided him. He learned to walk in step with the spirit. He just never failed like you and I do. This is the servant. But again, our question, what will he be like? What is Jesus like? Let's see four simple things this morning, beloved. The first is the work of the servant. Isaiah prophesies about the work of the servant, what he's going to do. Let's talk about what he's going to do for a moment. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, verse 3, repeats that same refrain. He will bring forth justice for truth. What does the word justice mean? What does the word justice mean? We often hear that word in our day, don't we? This kind of justice, that kind of justice. In our day, in 2022, the phrase social justice is often used. What does the word justice mean here in Isaiah 42? Interestingly enough, the same Hebrew word is used way back in Exodus 26, verse 30. There, it's not translated as the word justice, but it's the same exact Hebrew word. Turn there with me. Exodus 26 and verse 30. Exodus 26 and verse 30. As you're turning there, you'll notice if you have subject headings at the beginning of your chapters, you'll read that this one says something like the tabernacle. And then there's a long description of what the tabernacle is to be like. Boys and girls, remember the tabernacle was that tent-like temple 
that was used by Moses and his people until the permanent temple was built. Look at Exodus 26, verse 30. Giving all these instructions, then the Lord says in verse 30 of Exodus 26, and you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. The word there for pattern is the same word used in Isaiah 42 for justice. Now, words have ranges of meaning, don't they? But this is instructive for us. Justice is not simply an issue of right and wrong. Justice, if you will, is a blueprint. In Exodus 26, it's a blueprint for the tabernacle. But in Isaiah 42, 1, the the suffering servant, the servant in whom the soul of God delights, as it were, is the one who will bring forth a blueprint for humanity. Bring forth justice for humanity and cause it to occur. This is the work of the servant. Now, think about the way that you view the world. You watch the news. You hear of these things that are so difficult to hear. Our brother prayed as we ought to pray for the various crimes and shootings that have just occurred in the last few weeks. Think about our world and then think about the fact that this servant is going to be the one who is going to bring about a complete blueprint and plan for all of humanity. God is about to act, Isaiah says, and he's going to send forth his servant to do this work. He will bring forth justice or he will provide and make to occur God's blueprint for humanity. Verse 7, we read of his work as well, don't we? Skip down there, Isaiah 42, 7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Not only will the suffering servant do the work providing a, a new blueprint for humanity or restoring God's blueprint and justice for humanity, but he will be used to open blind eyes. Those who cannot see, Isaiah says, will see. Every time I read a phrase like that, I think about that lyric in the hymn line, I once was blind, but now I see. See, this servant is going to come. And by his spirit, he is going to... Regenerate souls that are lost and dying in sin. You see, sin, friend, is not simply doing wrong things. Sin is existing in darkness. What does the scripture say? God is light. In him is no darkness. But every human being is born in a kind of darkness. They're blind. They they think that they can see, but they cannot see. And what is blinding them is their sin and rebellion against the living God. But this servant, Isaiah prophesies, again, hundreds of years before Jesus would be born, he is going to be the one to open blind eyes. Can't you testify today, believer, that this servant has opened your eyes? When you were in darkness, when you were in blindness, he caused you to see, see your sin and see your need for him and to reach out to him with the arms of faith, which his spirit gives you and unite your soul to him. And for the first times, the things that used to seem nonsensical or mythical have become things that are very, very clear to you. You see differently. You're walking among the world. 
You're living in the same relationships. Perhaps you have the same job. You're going to the same schools. But Christ saves you and you see differently. This is going to be the work of the coming servant. But a second thing regarding this sermon that answers the question of what will Jesus be like? It's not only the work of the servant, but the tenderness of the servant. The tenderness of the servant. Look at verse 2. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. The other world leaders of the day, Cyrus included, would come and there would be trumpets. There would be pomp. There would be circumstance, if you will. There would be arguments. Bow and worship this one. And yet we read Jesus in the Gospels constantly saying in various ways and for various reasons, don't talk about this yet, for my time has not yet come. You see Jesus performing miracles when the rest of us, as we prayed this morning, would want praise for it. There's not a single word. In fact, he is born in a manger, in a mere stable. There was nothing special about his appearance, Isaiah says elsewhere, that we should recognize him. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Think about your Savior walking on the earth for 30 some years. Sometimes there were strong words to contradict rightly the false teachings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But Jesus was humble and lowly of heart. John Oswald, in his commentary on this passage, says this. The point is plain. Like the child of chapter 9 and the branch of chapter 11, God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression. Nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself and return only grace. He will not cry out in the streets. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax, boys and girls, that could be also translated so we can understand it. A smoking candle he will not quench. Now these phrases might not mean something to us unless we've meditated on this passage. Or perhaps read Puritan authors on this passage. Because in addition to the tenderness of the servant with his voice, not drawing attention to himself, not forcing people to praise him as he's walking through the streets, which was his right. A bruised reed he will not break and a a smoking flax, a smoking candle he will not quench. Matthew Poole, Puritan writer, commenting on this passage, says this, quote, the sense is plainly this. Christ will not deal roughly and rigorously with those that come to him, but he will use all gentleness and kindness to them, passing by their greatest sins, bearing with their present infirmities, cherishing and encouraging the smallest beginnings of grace, comforting and healing wounded consciences and the like. And Poole is absolutely right. What is intended here is that if you read this In the flow of how it's written in chapter 41, there is a discussion, isn't there, in verse 21 of how Cyrus is going to be brought forth and Cyrus is going to bring about justice for God's people. But how the Gentile nations are going to be brought low for their idolatry. 
And here we think of the Lord God stamping out all false worship, which he will do. But before that great day, where all sin will be completely judged on those who've rejected this servant, God sends his servant to walk among us and he will not cry out in the streets. He will not bring great attention to himself. He will not crush that which is brought low even almost to the point of death. The sense here is that as the world is dealt with, Jesus, the coming servant, will not destroy those even with the faintest signs of life. Think about reeds, those plants that grow out of riverbeds. To be useful, they can't be broken. So oftentimes, I am told that people would collect them and They would take the ones that were whole and complete, but the ones that were broken, they would leave or they would burn or they would completely cut down. Let's get it out of the way. We do the same thing with other crops in our day, don't we? We'll take that tomato, but not this one. We'll take that stalk of corn, but not this one. This one is too bruised. It is too broken. It's left. Not so with our Savior. In tenderness. As his word goes forth and the word of his law goes forth, which we read of in this text, even the one with the slightest amount of faith, the one that is bruised and broken, even the candle that's not even fully burning, but just smoking, waiting to kind of be snuffed out and have the person move on. No, our Savior will invigorate these. He will love these. He will gently deal with these. Similarly, Matthew Henry says, quote, those that are wicked, he will be patient with when he has begun to crush them so that they are as bruised reeds. He will give them space to repent and not immediately break them, though they are very offensive as smoking flax. Yet he will bear with them as he did with Jerusalem. Those that are weak, he will be tender of. Those that have but a little life, a little heat, that are weak as a reed, oppressed with doubts and fears, as a bruised reed, that are as smoking flax, as the wick of a candle newly lighted, which is ready to go out again, he will not despise them, will not plead against them with his great power, nor lay upon them more work or more suffering than they can bear, which would break and quench them but will graciously consider their frame. Jesus Christ is very tender toward those that have true grace, those they are but weak in it, and accepts the willingness of the Spirit, pardoning and passing by the weakness of the flesh. Now, friends, make no mistake, this is not a scriptural text that says that the suffering servant, the coming servant of God, will not care about sin. But it's simply a prophecy That as God is saying, I am moving history. I am bringing my plans to bear. I am stamping out idolatry. I am stamping out those who crush my people. That walking down through the course of history in the midst of them is one servant who is gentle and tender. And as the word of God's law comes out and reeds are crushed by it, he will not walk along and kick down those with the weakest of faith. Rather, heal them and restore them and use them. He will do what we will not do. For aren't we often 
frustrated by bruised reeds and smoking flaps. Aren't we often impatient and angry with bruised reeds and smoking flaps? Aren't we often disgusted by bruised reeds and smoking flaps? And here, hundreds of years before He would come, Jesus is pictured as the gentle and tender one who will not even crush the reed that seems to be the most worthless. You have questions about whether you can go to Jesus in your sin, believer. You have concerns about whether Jesus has finally grown impatient with your laziness in the faith. You wonder if Jesus is one that you can go to for the one thousandth and first time, confessing the same sin. You wonder if Jesus is tender enough to handle the fact that you haven't prayed this week or read your Bible this week. You ever wondered, can I truly worship a Savior today when this past week has been a spiritual disaster? When I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when I'm in the midst of some kind of spiritual darkness, when I feel like I haven't performed well at all for the last five years in my faith, can I really go to Him? The Holy Spirit whispers the inscripturated word in your ear. A bruised reed. He will not break. And a candle that is just about to go out, he will not snuff. You see, he's not the bruised reed. He's not the smoking flax. You and I so often are. What is Jesus like? He has a work. And he is so very tender. But thirdly, in our text, we not only see the work of the servant and the tenderness of the servant, but we see the resolve of the servant. Can one so tender get the job done? Can one so tender not ultimately grow discouraged? Notice verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice, there it is again, in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. Think of it, boys and girls. It's as if God's word is going to move out throughout the ages to the very ends of the earth. The coastlands. Notice what this says. There's a resolve of the servant. He will not fail or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Prophesying first about the first coming of Christ. Notice the promise. Isaiah says, as he walks among filthy men, as he obeys God's law, as he hangs on a cruel cross, as he deals with the spit of the soldiers, as he deals with the thorns, as he deals with the laziness and unbelief of those who walk closest with him, he will not fail. But then, friend, think about the fact that this prophecy is not ultimately just about the first coming of the servant, but ultimately the entire work of the servant. So he didn't fail in his first coming and he's not failing now and he won't fail in his second coming. Because of the work of the son being an unending thread, we can imply even now that this glorified servant, the one who was crucified, risen, 
and glorified and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one that the scripture says actually stands in the midst of local churches as they worship God on the Lord's day. This one is not discouraged by the current missionary task. This one will not fail in the current missionary task. This one is not discouraged, nor does he believe that the church has failed. He isn't fearful that you will not persevere, Christian. He will not fail to keep you. You see, this resolve of the servant, he has a work to do. It's a work that he will do tenderly until that great day when he comes to judge the earth. And even amid his tenderness, he will not fail. He will not fail. Translation, the tender one who will not break me down, though I am worthy to be cast out in the fire of broken reeds, will be tender with me and he won't fail. See, we have the work of the servant, the tenderness of the servant, the resolve of the servant. But then we have a structure to view this in. And that's fourthly and lastly, the covenant of the servant. If you keep reading in verse five, the language shifts. Now it's as though the Lord God, the triune God, is speaking to the servant. Look there. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Isaiah 42, verse 5 would be a wonderful way to begin your prayers. Lord God Almighty, you are God, the Lord. You created the heavens and earth and you stretched them out. You spread forth the earth. And bring about all that comes from it. Every tomato plant in my backyard is from your very hand. You give breath to me and all peoples. And spirit to those who walk on the earth. You rule. You reign. It's this God who says in verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. And will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you. This is the servant. I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people. As a light to the Gentiles. Now this phrase, covenant, of course, is all over the scriptures. But the further we get in the Bible to the coming of Christ, the closer we get to it, it's as if this discussion of God bringing about a covenant through this servant begins to ramp up. Oh, we hear of the words in the garden, the promise There's going to come a skull-crushing seed of the woman. And we see God utilizing a variety of covenants to provide for his work. The Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, boys and girls, and all creation. A covenant that keeps the world moving, though it deserves to be crushed in an instant. A covenant with Abraham that solidifies a particular people. It is this people from whom the... Servant will come. He gives them a covenant to make them a nation and give them a law. He makes a covenant with David and says there's going to be a king. So as if there are all of these arrangements to keep the promise of Genesis 3.15 going. And then we get to these latter prophetic books. And what do we see? The one who's coming will be a covenant. He will be a covenant. That's what Isaiah is saying. 
We won't turn to all of these. But this same reference happens in Isaiah 56, verse 3 and 4. Isaiah 59, verse 21. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Ezekiel 16, verse 60. Ezekiel 37, verse 26. And on the very last page of the Old Testament, Malachi 3, 1. Turn there with me. Malachi 3, 1. Boys and girls, that's the very last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. There it is, right on the last page of the Old Testament. Well, what is this covenant? Some of us learn the word covenant as being just an agreement between two people. Really, I think we need to expand upon that. Our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 1, says that covenants in the Bible are where God, quote, voluntarily condescends. You see... It's not as though we're here and God's here and we're equal. Even before sin, God is the infinite creator of all things, the unchanging one, the simple one, the one who cannot learn anything. For there's no knowledge that he doesn't have, the one who's not bounded in any way. And then there's us, finite creatures, even before our fall into sin. We're limited. We're creaturely. We're not equal. So covenant is not just an arrangement, an agreement Covenant is always God condescending, coming to us, as it were, coming down to us with specific terms, specific arrangements, and specific offers. Now the servant is prophesied as the one who will be a covenant. God, the living God, the triune God, is putting forth the servant as the covenant. Jesus, the servant of Isaiah's song, brings the covenant of grace and added, and as it is seen here, he is offered as a covenant. So should it surprise us when there are words describing him in the New Testament, words that go like this? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. You see, there are words in Isaiah 42.6 for Christians today and for non-Christians. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, the words of Isaiah 42.6, the prophecy here, is still for your ears to hear. That God brings to you Jesus. He places Him before you as the all-righteous, sin-bearing atonement for sin, as the avenue, the road, and the way to salvation, to being freed from blindness, and from the wrath that you deserve because of your sins. And He's put forth so that every time you hear a minister of the Gospel preach the Scriptures rightly, or you read of the Gospel in a Gospel track, Jesus is offered A person is offered to you. You may say, but I'm 
I'm a sinner. Yes, Jesus offers salvation to sinners. God offers this servant to you as a covenant, as it were. Will you come to him? Jesus being offered as a covenant means that God has arranged all of the terms. Both his covenant people having kept his law and having their sins atoned for. And it all happens and meets perfectly in Christ. This is the cross of Christ. A covenant of grace whereby people by faith alone receive imputed to their accounts a perfect life lived. But it's not theirs. It's his. And they receive a complete and whole pardon from sin. But it's not their doing. It's his. And he is offered. You see, friend, the gospel is receiving Christ and all of his benefits. But you see, Christian, for you who believe in this servant, for you who are walking by faith this day, there's a word here for you as well in Isaiah 42, 6. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Christian, see yourself not simply as floating around in some kind of nebulous relationship with God. Rather, see yourself as related to God by way of his covenant, which comes to us in Christ. He has defined the terms. He has made promises. Hebrews 6. The God who does not lie has made promises to those who are in covenant with him. And then you march yourself two verses previous in Isaiah 42 and read the servant who is the covenant will not fail. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 beautifully speaks of the reality of what Jesus will be like. Verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Remember 42 happens flowing right out of 41 where the Gentile idol worship is condemned. And then it's almost as if, at least in my opinion, in verse 9, the Lord God says, what do your idols have? Can they tell you the future? Look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Lay down your idols and come to the living God who created the heavens and stretched them out and offers this servant, this tender one, this unfailing one as a covenant. And wrap yourself in Him. Cling to Him by faith alone. And know, even on your worst day, on a day where your candle is barely smoking, you feel as if at any moment you will spiritually die. You feel as if any moment you will be snuffed out. That you're hanging by a thread, Christian, until you are with Him. This covenant one, this unfailing one. Remember, He will not He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoking flax. Rather, he will ignite it. Probably the most famous work on this passage is that work, The Bruised Reed, written by Richard Sibbs, the Puritan of the 1600s. Listen to what he says. He break not the bruised reed nor quenched the smoking flax, 
where more is meant than spoken. For he will not only not break the bruised reed, nor quench, etc., but he will cherish them. Oh, Christian, we have a servant who has come to us who will not break the weakest among us. He will not do what the rest of us might want to do and just go ahead and quench that stinking smoke that is left. He will cherish the bruised reed. He will cherish the smoking candle. And on our weakest day, we can run to the arms of our tender Savior that the living God has given to us as a covenant. And His arms will always be open wide. That is what is prophesied of Him. And when we think that we should doubt it, don't simply look to His tenderness. Listen to Isaiah 42.4. He will not fail nor be discouraged. When you're bruised and smoking and almost dead and discouraged to the end, He'll still receive you. And even in receiving you, He won't be discouraged. What a blessing. Praise the living God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You have gifted us beyond measure in giving us the servant, the tender one, the one who does the work unfailingly, who's been put forth as a covenant for all who will come to him by faith. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and increase the faith of your people in running to you, bruised reeds and smoking flaxes that we be so often. Help us, O Lord, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name.